0: I think first and foremost, you need to have a strategy. I think we're past the point of you can just think that you can ignore it or, you know, the market is down again. Hooray, Bitcoin is dead again. Bitcoin is not dead, Web3 is not dead. The number of users, quite frankly, keeps going up. So first and foremost, it is to accept that it is going to be around and that
1: you need to
0: have a strategy on how this may play out for your own business.
1: From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from Ian DeBode, a partner in our San Francisco office, talking about the next generation of the internet. Whether you call it decentralized platforms or Web3, these technologies provide online capabilities that can transform business models. Our goal today is to demystify them. What are some of the myths about Web3 and where do the current business opportunities really lie? I'd like to note that I met with our guests on today's podcast in early November, 2022, and that today's podcast is a few minutes longer than normal because we cover a number of foundational elements of web three. We really hope you'll find it helpful. Now I'd like to introduce our guests. Ian DeBode leads our web three efforts in North America. He's joined by Matt Higginson, a partner in our Boston office and a leader in our financial services and risk practices who heads up our blockchain and digital assets initiatives globally. Ian and Matt are co-authors of a recent article, Web3 Beyond the Hype, which you can find on mckinsey.com and in the show notes of today's episode. We also have Julian Seviano, a partner in our San Francisco office who advises financial institutions, digital assets firms, and regulatory agencies on the risk and compliance implications of launching, scaling, and supervising digital assets businesses. Ian, Matt, Julian welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Ian, let's start with you. It'd be great if you could first address head on what I think many business executives still believe, that crypto, blockchain, and other aspects of Web3 are really just happening at the margins and they're not something that they need to spend much time worrying about. What's your take?
0: Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. Uh, So Web3, let's talk about it. Uh, Whenever we have a conversation like this, yeah, we believe it's helpful to kind of anchor a little bit in a couple of numbers to kind of show the scale or how non-scale this space has gotten to. Uh, at the end of 2021, right, some of these numbers may look different right now, but I think it's just important to anchor a little bit on some of these things. First big number I'd like to share is about 300 million people. That's the amount of people that own a digital asset, give or take, worldwide. So you're looking at a sizable number of people that are involved in this space second big number is $2 trillion. That was the market cap of digital assets at the end of 2021. Right now it's give or take $1 trillion. At some point it was $3 trillion. So clearly there's still a lot of volatility, but it is safe to say this has become a trillion dollar asset class that still is largely unbanked, uninsured, underserved more broadly, right? So that in and of itself presents quite a lot of opportunity which is exemplified in some of the revenues that the early movers are taking. So another big number could be $70 billion. That was about the market cap that Coinbase went public at last year. At some point it went up to a hundred billion dollars, but it more, even more importantly is last year they did about $8 billion in revenue. And even this year with the market downturn, they're on track to do give or take three maybe even $4 billion of revenue in a year. That is a meaningful amount. So, a couple of other real quick numbers, give or take $2 trillion. That's the volume of stable coins that is, that is moving, uh, per quarter on a blockchain, right? So sometimes from our clients, we get this perspective that this space is too nascent. It can't actually support meaningful volumes. But if you look at the numbers, even today after the market downturn, stable coins are being transacted on the blockchain at the order of seven to $800 billion a month and then last but not least $30 billion, that's the number of VC investment that went into the space in 2021. Now obviously that is a meaningful amount even this year with capital being a lot more expensive that number may probably be met, probably won't be surpassed, but it'll get very close to it. So there's a meaningful amount of capital that is flowing
1: into, you know, the web3 space. Those those are impressive figures indeed. But how does all this relate to web3 and what exactly is Web
0: three. Some people see it as the next iteration of what the internet has become. And if you think about how the internet has evolved to date, the first iteration of the internet, which really started in the 1980s, give or take, was really focused on the innovation that you could show information to a global audience, right? Think of the website. That's kind of where it started. All of a sudden you enabled users all across the world to read whatever it was that you were showing them, right? So it was all about the read functionality, but in essence, the internet in a way was stateless, right? It was a unidirectional flow of information, which was interesting, but you know, not necessarily as disruptive as it could have been, which we started to see in the next iteration, it started in the, the mid 2000s called web two uh, where users It wasn't just about the read functionality, it was also about a write functionality, right? You started having network-based businesses that enabled users to also input information into the system. Think of Google, think of Facebook, think of these platforms where users were enabled to actually upload content. And as a result, you get to change the user
1: experience
0: and you get to turn it into an actual valuable business model because lo and behold, These businesses were capturing a lot of user information, but storing it on their own private servers and then using ways to actually optimize the user experience or monetize that data in different ways. But as a result, the Internet evolved from something that initially was stateless into something that it became increasingly siloed. Just think about all the different passwords and logins and accounts that you have these days on the Internet It is precisely because all of your information is being stored in these separate accounts on private servers that are oftentimes controlled by entities. So enter web three where it's not just about reading and writing, but also about owning the reason why people get excited is because for the first time people get to actually have meaningful control over their own data and get to own that information, get to own their own assets, independent of a third party entity, independent of an actual enterprise that they can use that information for whatever purposes they see fit.
1: That does seem like a big change, as you say. So how does Web3 enable this personal ownership of information?
0: So when you think about the underlying primitives for something like this, there's three of them. First one is blockchain which really operates as your open data layer that anyone can read and anyone can write to, right? There's been so much written about a blockchain uh, that sometimes you think you do, can cure cancer, but the reality is it's just an open database, right? That is structured in a very interesting way. It, you know, it is hosted in tens of thousands of different locations, but it is always synchronized. It is an amended only database. You know, you only add data to it in a block-like sequence, which has, specific security uh, implications. But in essence, it is a database, right? But again, one that is not controlled by a single entity, one that is actually decentralized, anyone can read, anyone can write to, so it's an open database. Then you've got these smart contracts. Smart contracts are in essence just software programs, but they're a different form of a software program that can automatically execute when certain conditions are met. But the way to think about a smart contract is it's a software layer, right? So now we've got an open data layer. We've got an autonomous software layer. And then last but not least, you're going you have these digital assets, which really is anything of value that can be represented on the internet. But the ledger of record in this case is the blockchain. And because it lives on the blockchain, it can actually engage with these smart contracts, engage with these software programs, and as a result become programmable. So all of a sudden, these assets can be put to productive use, generate yield. So, Interestingly enough, if you have these three primitives, you could start to build a lot of different applications on it, right? We've seen applications in financial services called DeFi. We've seen increasingly social media platforms try to innovate on this tech stack, gaming, lots of arts and media use cases popping up. And interestingly enough, they're all built on the same tech stack, right? This is, again, a very different implementation than what exists today where your financial services may be using one tech system, the social media platform is built on an entirely different tech stack. For the first time, all of these different applications can actually use the same tech stack and as a result, become interoperable with one another. So these experiences in and of itself are seamlessly connected, which is why sometimes people link Web3 with the concept of the metaverse.
1: Let me jump in with a few clarifications for those of us who are less tech savvy than our guest today. First off, uh, Ian mentioned primitives, and that's actually a term for segments of code that you can use to build bigger and more sophisticated applications. The metaverse is the concept of a unified virtual world where people can interact with each other and which some people think will become the next version of the internet. And um, earlier, Ian mentioned stable coins, these are digital currencies that peg their value to external references or assets, things like the US dollar or a specific commodity. Hopefully, I got all of that right, Ian. Anyway, back to the main thread. You mentioned that blockchain is an open database. If it's open, how is the data in that database actually secured? Yeah,
0: oh, 100%. So, the security of the blockchain, I mean, that's in and of itself a big question. I think. The two pieces that I would highlight is number one, the the data itself that is being stored on a blockchain is incredibly secure. Why? Because it is being stored at this point in tens of thousands of different locations. Right. So if you want to make any edit, well, you know, you're going to have to do that in all of these various locations. Right. That in and of itself provides some robustness to it. The second one that I highlight is the in terms of actually getting a transaction added to it. How does that actually work, right? Because if you don't trust that system, if you don't trust the security of that, then it becomes very easy to commit fraud. That is called kind of the consensus mechanism through which a particular transaction is agreed upon and said to be valid. There's two big systems right now. I mean, there's more, but to simplify, you've got proof of work and proof of stake. I won't get into too much of the specifics, but the bottom line is that in order for a transaction to get added to the blockchain, people need to put up actual resources and put skin in the game. As a result, if they try to commit fraud, they lose that. In the case of proof of work, what the skin in the game that you put in is the actual equipment that you have to buy to do a lot of computations to get something added. In the case of proof of stake, the thing that you're putting you know, the skin in the game is your capital. And if you get caught trying to commit fraud, you kind of lose that capital so that is kind of from a security perspective the two pieces that i would highlight seamless to say is both the bitcoin blockchain as well as the ethereum blockchain those are the two biggest ones there's a lot smaller ones that i wouldn't necessarily trust as much but the bigger ones have been up and running and by and large uh the the level of security breaches that we've seen
2: it's you know, none I- ian maybe i can add to that, which is when we think about how you actually own or have ownership of assets on the blockchain, what you're really owning are the cryptographic keys that secure your access to it. And when people hear about hacking of the blockchain or theft or losses, what we're actually talking about is theft of those keys rather than fundamentally breaking the security, the integrity of the blockchain. And it's almost like stealing your passwords, your online banking account. And so it is security of those that continues to be a, a challenge of human nature. How do you store those as opposed to the underlying technology, which you know, has broadly remained uh, with full integrity over more than 10 years.
1: Thank you, Matt and Ian. Well, let me make another quick public service announcement here. Bitcoin, I think almost everybody will have heard of. Ethereum is another digital currency platform and the currency it trades is called Ether. So I wonder, Ian, has blockchain already gone through different phases of evolution the way the internet has?
0: Yeah. Uh, the It's a great question. So again, it really depends on the blockchain that you look at. Bitcoin has been around by now for like, what, 13, 12, 13 years coming up on. Um, Ethereum, I believe, started in 2014, 15, if I'm not mistaken. So that's been about seven years. There's kind of, you could think of it as almost three generations. The first one was Bitcoin with You know, the original blockchain uh, as a proof of concept and obviously grew into the biggest one. That was the first generation. Then you had Ethereum that really introduced the concept of these smart contracts in the software layer. That's been around for, let's say, seven ish, eight years, give or take. And now you're starting to have a lot of, sometimes they call them Ethereum killers, that really try to innovate on the concepts that Ethereum brought with. You know, these smart contracts, et cetera, but really try to improve further on the scalability of these chains, the user experience, the amount of computation that you can actually process. There's a wide variety of things that people are trying to figure out ultimately, truly, to make these platforms more scalable and to bring down the cost per transaction. There are blockchains these days that are able to process transactions at, you know, pennies, fractions of pennies. The problem with them so far is they haven't really solved for a hundred percent uptime per se so it is very it's still early in the space i would say but that is why i wanted to highlight that 30 billion dollars of vc money because the amount of investment that is going into the space is quite frankly astounding
1: indeed that is a large amount of money Ian. why don't we turn to what executives really want to know about now which is how can i use these digital tools and assets to give me a strategic advantage in my business Matt, what what kind of guidance are you giving your clients on this?
2: Perfect. Well, thank you. I think you can look at examples like tracking the provenance and the authenticity of high value items, things like diamonds and high fashion items uh, as a potential improvement on existing technologies and therefore an opportunity to to monetize this technology. I think we look at things like facilitating instant settlement of B2B transactions, the Instant value transfer, certainly, that some of the more innovative payment companies and some of the emerging fintech and, and fintech like uh, small banks are offering to improve the efficiency of, of transactions. We could even look at things like tokenizing digital content, the creation of music or art as digital tokens, or even virtualware in the metaverse. These are all applications where using blockchain technology as a single source of truth enables the creation of digital content that then has monetary value. I think if we look at some of the opportunities on the uh, decreased cost side, we look at things like how do you improve the visibility across supply chains? How do you improve the flow of funds in supply chain finance as an application of this technology that is starting to provide some incremental improvements on traditional rather analog technologies in that space. And then finally, how do we reduce the complexity of financial services and really do things like consumer lending in a more efficient and cost efficient, therefore a better priced way that's of benefit to consumers.
1: And is this where we're seeing that massive amount of uh, VC investment in innovation really focusing on today, on bringing business applications for this technology to the market?
2: I would argue that actually, if we go ahead, we see more innovation in the digital assets themselves. We have the native tokens. And Ian mentioned some of the uh, blockchains that have been around for the longest time, things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, the native tokens here of Bitcoin and Ether, or essentially tokens that were originally envisaged to reward those providing the infrastructure, those offering node services to verify and confirm transactions. Over time, as that network has grown in its utility, its function, its functional value, then those tokens have taken on value themselves. So the ether token for the Ethereum blockchain has a value in the marketplace because it is supporting a number of applications and people see the growth of that ecosystem and want to invest in the underlying technology. Another category of of digital assets would be the stable coins and central bank digital currencies, essentially tokenizing cash. In the case of central bank digital currencies, it's a central bank issuing and tokenizing cash. In the case of stable coins, it's often a private entity which is creating a a tokenized version of cash. On on one instance of that, it could be fully reserved. So taking a real dollar, putting it in in a reserve account and issuing a tokenized version of that to improve the the liquidity and the ease of, of transactions. And then there are other versions which are less fully reserved, all of them with the intention of improving the flow of value around the world. And Ian mentioned about, you know, sometimes upwards of about $100 billion in 24 hours of these tokenized forms of cash moving around the world on blockchain. A third category would be the governance tokens. Essentially, these are tokens that provide some degree of decision rights in determining the strategy of a decentralized organization. If we look at some examples of decentralized lending, I can own a token for that platform, and that gives me voting rights in determining the direction of strategy of future products. It might be the future pricing of a lending product. It might be the liquidity requirements, the the collateral requirements for a particular lending product. by owning a governance token, one token generally relates to one vote in making a vote on the future direction of of that organization. The remaining uh, versions of tokens are really tokenizing everything else. That could be tokenizing digital content. I mentioned already about you could create music and art as digital tokens and transact those. You can also tokenize real physical assets, things like um, real estate, commercial real estate. You could tokenize carbon credits. You could tokenize ideas, intellectual property. All of these enabling the creation of something which is uh, um, uh, essentially a a commodity that people can own and transact. It also allows you to uh, fractionalize that and enable greater uh, velocity and simplicity in trading and ultimately greater liquidity investing in these particular assets.
1: Thanks, Matt. So what is it exactly that you tokenize? Is it the proof of ownership? Obviously, you can't tokenize a physical thing, so what are the legal implications for assets that have been tokenized? For example, if you buy a property, uh, you know, like a, a physical piece of real estate, your ownership is actually registered in a, in a public book and, you know, at a court and public records. Does that change with the use of tokens?
2: Correct. And and Sean, what that question touches on as well is ultimately what do you need to believe or what needs to be in place for this truly to, to scale? And the reality is, if you're going to tokenize real estate, you are tokenizing the the title, the ownership, and potentially fractionalizing that. Now, where we see real benefit there is that by fractionalizing, you're opening up the markets to investors who might not be able to purchase a whole office building, but I can purchase a fraction of it and invest in that enterprise. At the same time, we know that without the legal framework in place that entitles the token holder to legally have a claim on that title, there's a little bit of a break between the physical world and the digital world. And frankly, that's a space that's evolving, and there are jurisdictions around the world that are trying to cement that ownership, the legal ownership, by holding the the token that represents that asset, yeah.
0: One real quick uh, thought on that too, maybe, um... I think the best example, quite frankly, of a tokenized real-world asset at this point is cash, as it exists in a stablecoin, right? So the the way it happens is you put a bunch of cash or short-term treasuries in a bank account or big custodian. The value that's represented there, you just put it on a blockchain in the form of a stablecoin. The benefit of that is once it's out there on a blockchain too, it can operate 24-7. It's global in nature. You can tap into all the infrastructure benefits that otherwise you couldn't have if it's still stuck, if the asset is still stuck in the traditional legacy system. That's another way to think about tokenization of real-world assets.
1: Thanks, Ian. What, What are some of the most disruptive applications that you've seen coming? In your article, you talk about the decentralized business model for deposits and loans. So maybe we could start there, Matt.
2: Super. Well, and under the Web2 model that we all know, depositors are going to be depositing funds into an account at a bank. And that bank is keeping track of those deposits using a private ledger and ultimately is determining the, the, the private record of all of the deposits and loans to borrowers. The decisioning about things like the rates for those loans and the overall governance stays and and sits with the management of the financial institution, with the corporation and with the shareholders. And it's to those that ultimately the revenues will flow from things like the interest payments paid by the borrower. This is a model we're all pretty familiar with and frankly one that's been around for a very long period of time. In the Web3 version of this, what is different is that we are not entrusting all this to a private ledger held by a private entity, a private enterprise with its own corporate governance body. Instead, in Web3, the depositors actually deposit their funds into a smart contract, which sits as a token on a blockchain. And ultimately, borrowers also borrow funds from that smart contract. In fact, they may deposit collateral for their loan but then borrow from that smart contract and the administration of that is done through the smart contract itself not through some sort of human intervention in addition when we look at the governance we actually have a governance through a distributed autonomous organization the strategy for that lending is actually being decided by those token holders the governance token holders And they can set things like the collateral requirements for the loan or even potentially the the direction of some of the funding, the interest rates and the like. And it's interesting with the pricing of these loans, there's a component which is going to be priced according to the abundance of funds. And often many of these smart contracts are designed so that the more abundant, the cheaper the borrowing, the more scarce the assets, the more expensive that the borrowing becomes. And there can be a component that actually also takes a small additional fee that, for instance, gets put into a fund to cover insurance in case of failure of the smart contract. But in all of those examples, we do not have the same central entity doing the administration that we have in the traditional Web2 world. And the excitement here, truly disruption, is that could we set these up in a broadly autonomous way that means that we're providing more flexibility, more choice, more ownership? by the participants, and potentially also better pricing cheaper products because we're eliminating a lot of the core manual administration. Now, what it doesn't do is exclude the need to have core risk functions. And so we'd say that both of these still need some kind of risk oversight, particularly if we're getting into the world of uncollateralized lending.
1: So you mentioned private ledgers. How private is the information as to who holds what? in the decentralized model. If this is all on a giant blockchain, one of the advantages of having your money at a bank, aside from government deposit insurance, is that you know what the balance is, but it's not publicly known. So how does that work on blockchain?
2: Yeah, one of the things that people find is a little bit kind of enigmatic about this technology is we talk about public permissionless blockchains that are extremely secure. What that means is the blockchain itself is a public entity effectively, and we could set up a node to be able to hold a complete copy of that blockchain. But unless you know where to look, the specific address of where to look, you actually can't see things. And equally, certainly without the private key, you can't administer any changes, you can't initiate a transaction. So if you know where to look and you're provided the address, actually the information is very public. At the same time, without that, you can make that, keep that very private. And one could argue that To the future, we probably need mechanisms to enable true privacy whilst retaining the utility of this kind of public database to administer these sort of lending products.
1: You know, another question that this raises is how is the blockchain actually maintained? I think Ian uh, earlier had talked about how folks are compensated for maintaining the security of the blockchain is that typical with cryptocurrency are there any other ways that the folks who maintain the security and integrity of the blockchain compensated besides that
2: yeah i mean the historical model of this has been it took electricity to run the servers run the nodes and for that people got compensated through what you're calling the cryptocurrency we call sort of the native token and that has been historically the mechanism for doing it i think there are models where you say instead of being compensated by a native token as monetary value, there may be private instances of this or closed networks, where actually the reward for maintaining it is access to the data. And you could almost imagine a system, a closed loop system, I know for instance, for health records that conforms to HIPAA regulations, but actually the participants are the healthcare providers who then will be able to use that data to provide better health care. That's a theoretical model, but historically we've largely been you know, focused on the native token as a mechanism for award. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but I really like that question, Sean, because we get asked that quite a lot is like, why do I need ETH? Like, why does it even exist, right? Um, and I think th- the point really to make is, it rewards the miners to actually uphold the blockchain. What that also means is if I wanna make a transaction on Ethereum, I need to actually have ETH to pay those miners to include it into a block. So in essence, Ethereum represents a claim on bandwidth into the system. If you think a lot more people want to have bandwidth in this Web3 ecosystem, that makes ETH also an investment product.
1: So how do the costs stack up between maintaining private ledgers versus paying miners to maintain the integrity of the blockchain. Have, have the costs for the blockchain gone down, you know, on an absolute basis over time, and have they gone down versus private ledgers, for example?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and one that you <laughs> we also get asked quite a bit. I think there's no denying that if you want to run a centralized database and ledger, it's gonna be a lot cheaper to do that. But what people, I think, overlook is there are hidden costs in a model like that because you end up paying for it, oftentimes in the form of pricing power that that entity has. Right. So if you run something on a completely decentralized infrastructure where anyone can read, write, run applications, etc., yes, running the actual infrastructure is most likely going to be more expensive than if you just ran it on a centralized blockchain. But at the same time, all the applications built on top of it are oftentimes even free to use, even though you get the same benefit, if not better, than what exists in legacy systems, because it operates 24-7, it's global, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I, I think the other aspect of this is that over time, we have seen the actual operational cost of public permissionless blockchains come down. We've seen algorithms and the technological construct for doing the confirmation transactions getting simpler, requiring fewer confirmations, faster, frankly, requiring less of the compute power to do this, which, of course, is is welcomed by everybody. I I think the, the other thing to bear in mind is that for legacy institutions looking to adopt this, there will be this transition period where inevitably there is a cost to participate. I still take Ian's point, which is the cost to participate as a node in a broader blockchain is lower than if you're trying to set up your own IT system, your own database, yourself. Yeah.
1: Fair enough, uh, Julian. Let's bring you into the discussion. What's your take on this cost issue?
3: Maybe the last thing I would add is there's constant, you know, just like in in other industries, there's a constant amount of innovation going on in blockchain technology. There are competing blockchains that are continually innovating and kind of they're 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 working on kind of the balance of just like in in the real world of or, or in the normal world of computation. You know there are high cost, high value systems, and then then there are lower cost systems for for lower value activities. And I think that that's the type of kind of trade offs that different blockchains are actually working on right now.
1: Thanks, Julian. Matt, are there any other use cases for Web three that you think have important implications for incumbent companies that are looking to get in on the uh, on Web three?
2: The other major use case we've seen for this technology which is the creation, ultimately, the utility of NFTs on non-fungible tokens. I want to talk about really four big groupings that we've seen evolve over the last couple of years. I'm going to start with this idea of pure art NFTs, that is, original works of art. They can be digitally native art. They're going to be traded as tokenized art on NFT marketplaces, but they are often themselves beautiful pieces of artwork this isn't just digitizing something that exists already but you can even get things called generative art where the algorithm for the token to which this non-fungible token is assigned has itself data and uh, algorithms to generate art to actually create dynamic art so there's a piece which is digitally native art issued as artistic nfts and those of you have been to marketplaces like OpenSea will see really high quality examples through things like art blocks on that site that you can buy and and, and trade and people hold and display for their artistic merit i think there is a second category which are the access nfts which are essentially providing access to exclusive experiences if i hold the token i hold the digital ticket to exclusive communities And often, this could be something like a digital backstage pass, the access to a concert, or even just access to a a social network, a Discord channel. Uh, One of the favorites here is uh, Steve Aoki, who is a musician and artist, has his own Discord channel. To access him and his followers, you need a piece of his work as an NFT as your entry ticket. And so this idea of getting closer to the artists through providing uh, access NFTs.
1: That's really fascinating. Um, are there any other applications you're seeing for NFTs?
2: The third application we've seen has been the evolution of identity. NFT is identity, particularly things like avatars. And this is the classic example of like a board, a bored ape yacht club where you can use that NFT as your identifier across a number of different platforms and venues. And ultimately, you could use it in your, in your Facebook or whatever the social media platform as your individual identity and frankly that gains value once we have this virality this idea that this is the thing to be seen as or seen in and this becomes my digital identity going forward and we're seeing a lot of that evolving through social networks and then finally the piece around functional nfts and this really is how do we start to digitize broader content and then provide access to that digital content across a number of interoperable different venues. It's just sort of as we see the Web3 ecosystem grow, can you put these assets into a wallet, these NFTs, and sort of carry them between different sites? Or can they have inherent value in a venue? Examples here would be things like virtual wearables, and I can carry them with me between different venues. And this really is, in some ways, our thought about the future of this form of NFT, is that how do you begin to create real value that people want to own and be able to carry with them in this interoperable ecosystem. Some of the benefits we see with NFTs, things like perpetual royalties. You can, you can code royalties. So every time an NFT is sold, some of the revenues flow back to the original creator. I've talked about direct access. You can get direct access to your customer if they hold NFTs in a wallet so you know how to get to their wallet. And also this idea of just having portability between different uh, digital venues. And we are likely to see that really continue to, to flourish.
1: Thanks, Matt. Um, this all sounds really impressive, but there must be some pitfalls that those new to these technologies need to look out for also. I know, Julian, that this is an area you cover in your work with financial institutions on, on such topics as like money laundering exposure. What kinds of risks should businesses really be focusing on here as they as they w- as they wade into
3: Web3? Thank you. Yes. A few of them we've already we've touched on with some of the questions. But, you know, whenever but whenever you talk about cryptocurrencies, everybody talks about AML and sanctions risk. And yes, it is true that the technology allows for obfuscation of identities and allows the transfer of value for illicit activities. We have seen that over the last decade that, you know, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have been used for illicit activities. They've also been used for sanctions evasion. But what's interesting to see is that cash is still very much king, you know, by some estimates coming from the FBI and from the US Treasury and from Europol, uh, the, the use of cash for money laundering still exceeds cryptocurrencies by a factor of anywhere between 100 and 800 times. And why is that? It's because uh, cryptocurrency is actually also quite transparent and the tools that are being built and developed to detect and monitor uh, you know, bad actors and illicit activity on different blockchains are ever evolving. Market manipulation is another example. This is still a very early market. So there are still unfortunately a lot of uh, insider trading, front running that you see in some of these areas Uh, In some geographies, there's light regulation or no regulation. And so these activities just continue to, uh, they they continue to happen. um, Unfortunately, again, there are tools that are being developed to police some of these activities uh, so that, you know, legitimate institutions that want to support uh, digital assets activities can do so in a way that they feel that they're meeting their, their compliance obligations and, and, and minimizing the risk of illicit activity act happening on their platform. Smart contract risk. So uh, Ian and Matt both talked about how we can leverage smart contracts to build really interesting applications on the blockchain. When you think about a smart contract, you really wanna think about how, you're, how you write software in, uh, in the normal world or in the non-crypto world. Uh, and the challenge with smart contracts right now while they have i would say amazing and fascinating use cases and almost unlimited potential utility is that there aren't a lot of standards on how to write smart contracts and how to manage the full life cycle of them there's also not that many tools out there yet to actually scan the codes code for smart contract and to basically be able to audit them there's more there's a constant development happening happening in this space but still very much a challenge So still a lot of illicit actors in the space. You would expect that in in, an early stage stage industry. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of people out there that are taking advantage of that. Key management and wallet management, I won't get into details because we did talk a little bit about security and we talked about how private keys are basically stored. But I will emphasize the point that we made earlier that these keys are not stolen, quote unquote, from the blockchain. Private keys are usually stolen from some form of storage. And usually they're stolen when those private keys are held in what's called a warm or hot environment, which means that wherever these assets are stored, they're connected to the internet. So the, C, the this 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 it, it's just like hacking passwords. You're basically hacking something else. Uh, the vast majority of digital assets are actually held in cold storage, which means they're held in, in environments that are not networked or connected to the internet. So they would have to physically find a, a, a device and actually use a memory to take, to take the information out of it. So there's a lot of security there still, you know, we're talking, we're talking about, about three, this year, $3 billion so far in losses, $3.2 billion last year. The good news is we're getting really good at recovering a lot of this stuff. The FBI recently announced a three and a half billion dollar seizure uh, of a current fraud and year to date, they have recovered over $7 billion in stolen assets.
1: Wow. Um, Julian, a a quick question on the keys. How does someone actually hold a key that lets them access assets associated with the tokens? Is this a little like a password that you write down? Is it on a USB stick? And what's the best way to keep it secure?
3: It's It's a really great question. So a key is just a series of alphanumeric numbers. So a key could be on a piece of paper. A key could be on your phone. A key could be, you know, so how would you normally, you could normally, t- typically the two ways to think about storing keys are custodial and non-custodial. Custodial meaning that you, someone is holding those private keys for you. So uh, one of the large exchanges will, you know, that you that, that we know of could be, you could buy Bitcoin through that, that exchange and they will store and hold that private key for you, right? Or you could decide to uh, withdraw that and hold it on your phone, you, there, you can actually have a wallet that you can actually have on your phone and you can on your phone or your computer. you could even hold it on a piece of paper. So there are different ways of doing that and holding private keys. Um, and really as I mentioned, most of the institutional institutions are using very large in you know secure custodians and they're storing the vast majority of their private of their of their private keys in cold storage. They will hold a small percentage of those keys. If they need to transact in some sort of a warm or hot environment, because it takes a little time. It takes time to re-network that computer literally and extract that private key and move it into a warm or hot environment so that it can be traded.
1: This is sounding pretty esoteric. I'm, I'm thinking about an environment like the, uh, the one in one of the Mission Impossible movies where Tom Cruise had to swim underwater to try and upload data from a USB stick to change a, a, you know, a security key.
3: Well, it's not that, uh, it's, you're not that far off, right? Some of these bunkers are literally in old military bunker, bunkers on the sides of of the, of the hills in the Alps. I mean, I'm not, not very far off in, in terms of the technology or the, you know, the brute force technology that people use to, to secure private keys for sure.
1: It's really interesting. So what types of regulations are in place to help protect these assets and, and you know, where they're not there, what do you think should be implemented?
3: Regulation is kind of all over the board in terms of what would help us safeguard our assets and help us manage, you know, this ecosystem better. It would be definitely more, you know, more concerted regulation. When I think about uh, regulation, I think about kind of four aspects, permissibility, you know, for, for governments and regulators to tell large institutions what they can and cannot do with digital assets, licensing, how do I actually go about getting approval to do this work? And to be able to support these activities, supervision. What are the rules that I have to follow in order to actually support digital assets activities, digital asset trading, digital asset uh, custody, lending, etc. And then enforcement. You know, how am I being? You know, how am I being held to task? Some jurisdictions, Switzerland, Singapore, soon to be the EU as well, with MiCA coming in. Where they actually are relatively supportive, where they've actually laid out the ground rules for the four elements that I that I focus, spoke, focused focused on, others that are affirmative, and I would add the U.S. into the affirmative category, where there is there are some levels of guidance but not a lot, but that they haven't restricted or made it illegal to transact in uh, and or hold digital assets, and then you have some jurisdictions for which it's either restrictive and or illegal. China being the biggest example of that as well.
1: Thanks, Julian. W- would you say that a uh, lack of robust regulation is actually one of the obstacles to broader corporate adoption of decentralized platforms?
3: I think that's absolutely one of them. Greater clarity and regulatory oversight would accelerate the growth of this act of, of, of this industry and would allow highly regulated institutions like banks and wealth managers and exchanges to participate more whole, more fulsomely in this activity. The industry itself is calling for regulation, which speaks to that point. User experience and security, it's still a little clunky. You and Matt talked about NFTs. It's not that easy to go out and buy an NFT. The, use case, the, the user interface is still challenging. You have to operate kind of natively in some cases with native, with native cryptocurrencies. And that's challenging for people that don't do this on a day-to-day basis like we do. And market robustness and consumer protection are also quite significant. There's still a tremendous amount of scams out there. And technology and scaling don't mean to pass over it, but we did talk about how these are, this is evolving technology. And that trade-off between security, cost, reliability, speed is something that the industry is still innovating on right now. And then lastly, environmental, which is this, clearly there's a large cost of, uh, of, uh, of energy, particularly in Bitcoin, where there's proof of work, where this requires a lot of computational power. But again, there's a lot of innovation going on in that space. And a lot of the the blockchains are moving to proof of stake, which require much less computational power.
1: Hmm. So it sounds like there are still a lot of uncertainties in the space. Ian, can you just explain how companies should prepare for the potential disruptions ahead and how soon do you think they're actually coming?
0: So the level of disruption is going to occur most likely at three levels could be in you know it's already happening in a way whether this fully plays out in 3 5 10 20 years i don't think anyone really knows but what is clear is there's probably three levels of disruption to focus on your first one is the assets it's come become abundantly clear that you will have your traditional assets your equities your debt your commodities cash they will still exist Right. But there's very clear latent demands, real retail and commercial demand for these novel and unexplored assets. We mentioned stable coins, CDCs, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, tokenized real estate, you name it. Right. There is a lot of these new assets that are forming and that have proven demand that is still very much active. I'll talk about that in just a second. So what we're starting to see is your next level of disruption is happening at the infrastructure level. In order to support these new assets and in order to support that demand, you start to get a maturation of the infrastructure around the custody and servicing of these assets, actual doing clearing and settlement, doing tokenization and issuance, bringing more assets on chain, the concept of identity and wallet management, privacy, as was mentioned before. Julian just talked about risk and compliance and all the tools that are being developed there. And even bigger than that, just the middleware and dev tooling, there's an entire ecosystem of developers that needs to learn how to code, how to build these things, how to operate on this infrastructure. So you have very clear, large investment going into this infrastructure. Once the infrastructure is supporting these digital assets, the types of services, this is your third layer of disruption, that can be built on it will increase, increase, right? We've already talked about the types of uh innovations around marketplaces the payment networks bar banking margin lending but there's a lot of ecosystems out there around gaming social media that are all starting to develop on a web 3 technology right so increasingly you're going to have for all of these various use cases and services a web 2 traditional equivalent as well as a web 3 new ecosystem and depending on the type of consumer protection, the settlement speed, does it operate 24-7, the costs You may opt for one or the other. It's not going to be, you know, both will coexist. And a lot of the opportunity is in actually figuring out how to be the bridge between those two. Once you have a lot uh, more Web3 services, the types of assets that you can think of will increasingly will multiply, and this kind of creates a feedback loop uh, that keeps going in and of itself.
1: Clearly, the eventual disruption will be considerable. But what about now or in the near future? How many people are actually involved in these ecosystems today? There is already significant penetration
0: of digital assets across the UK, US, India, etc., particularly in emerging markets. just want to highlight that number in India where you're looking at at least 13% there. If you then even gauge on for those people that do not own digital assets yet, but are very interested, likely or very likely to engage in digital assets in the next 12 months, those numbers easily get to 30% or more, right? So just again, to hammer home the point, there is a meaningful portion of the population that is very interested in digital assets. Mm -hmm. They often see it as a diversification investment, uh, potentially even for savings. Uh, Quite frankly, just a a fun new use case in NFTs. There is a meaningful portion of the population that will increasingly adopt these digital assets, and that is leading to an incorporation of infrastructure and services.
1: You're tempting me to get an NFT myself, but in the meantime, I have one more question to ask before we close out our podcast. What should business executives be doing? What are some of the early steps that you're seeing especially large incumbent companies take? to participate now in Web3 and to incorporate Web3 into their long-term business strategies? I think first and foremost, you need to have a strategy. I think we're
0: past the point of you can just think that you can ignore it or, you know, the market is down again, hooray, Bitcoin is dead again. Bitcoin is not dead, Web3 is not dead. The number of users, quite frankly, keeps going up. So first and foremost, it is, to accept that it is going to be around and that you you need to have a strategy on how this may play out for your own business. And in order for you to actually develop that, I think a lot of it starts with internal education, uh, internal and external education. I mean, just educate yourself, educate your management, educate your board on it so that you fully understand what this stuff is and what it isn't, to then really start to um, align and identify on how truly is this going to impact my business? and start experimenting with it, right? I think if you're in financial services right now, you're past the point of just a simple proof of concept, right? There's meaningful investment being made. If you are not in financial services, if you're more into like gaming, social media, you may have a little bit more time, but not that much. But there's, again, meaningful investment going into this space. But the infrastructure for some of these use cases is slightly less developed. So there you may take a little bit more of an experimentation approach. But again, the bottom line is, you need to have a strategy. You need to figure out how you're going to play in this
2: space. You know, I might add a couple of things to that. One is there's clearly a need to clarify the risk appetite of your business to participate. Right? We've highlighted some of the challenges, and actually making that a strategic decision is important. I think the other thing is that understanding the voice of the customer here is going to be critical. We've seen lots of examples of some sort of builders, and they will come that have failed. But if you really understand your demographics of your customer, you can design products and services that appeal, whether it's things like direct trading, whether it's very simple uh, closed loop payment networks, it could be NFTs, something else. Figuring out really where that latent demand is and tapping into it, that's where we see the growth going forward. It's from that crypto curious latent demand and expanding into the mainstream.
1: Uh, Matt, Ian, thank you. Julian, you get the last word.
3: Thank you. Yeah. So maybe three quick things I would think about it in three different ways. Think about how this technology can actually provide new revenue sources or enhance your ability to grow your business. Right. Uh, number one, think about how the technology can actually create more efficiency within your organization. How can it actually help you with customer acquisition? How can it help you managing your inventory, et cetera? That's number two. And then number three, think about yourself as a supplier to the industry. And is there a way for you to be able to contribute and to grow your business, to be an interesting supplier to this growing industry itself?
1: Awesome. Ian, Matt, Julian, this has been a fantastic and very informative conversation. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at at McKinsey.com or share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. Thank you to all of our listeners who've already reached out and rated and reviewed our podcast. We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback. Please do keep them coming. In the meantime, if you'd like to listen to additional episodes, we encourage you to follow our series and access our entire library of previous episodes on your favorite podcast player. You can also visit our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page, available at McKinsey.com slash ITSR. And that includes written transcripts of more than 120 past episodes. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, You can sign up on our Practice Insights page at McKinsey.com slash SCF. Follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.